John 21, 20 through 25. Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But, quote, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things down. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that this that would have been written. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What's up, guys? Good morning. Wow, okay. All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Anthony Hernandez. I help co-lead our small group ministry, which is what we call Redemption Communities. And I am very, very excited and honored to be preaching this last passage in the Gospel of John. All of our redemptions across the board have been preaching this for over almost a couple years, I believe. And I think, if I'm remembering correctly, it was mid-2020. I could have that off. So almost a couple years. North Mountain, where we're at now, wasn't even a church. We hadn't even formally launched out. We launched in January of 2021, and the Gospel of John had already been getting preached across many of our redemption congregations. So it's, a, it's sweet that we get to close out this book uh, with the rest of the, the redemption campuses across Arizona. Um, so it, it, it is an honor. It is a privilege of mine to be able to come and preach this sermon. Not only that, but today is Palm Sunday. So if you've been in any kind of church realm or environment for an extended period of time, I'm sure you've heard of at least Good Friday and Easter. But if you didn't know that, there are other days to the Holy Week, starting with today, which is Palm Sunday. And I, God, I totally forgot. I meant, I wanted to bring a palm, an actual palm branch here. And I thought, ah, people are going to think I'm kind of weird bringing a palm branch. But then Chandler reminded me that we had him last year on stage, and so I just felt kind of silly. And I was hoping someone from first service would go run out and grab me one, but nobody did. So that's where I stand with people, just FYI. But remember next year. I'll remember. All right, so what I wanted to do was to open up, before we dive into John, I wanted to read a prayer, which is actually from the, the Book of Common Prayer. It's a liturgy. Uh, it's kind of a back and forth situation where the congregation reads a piece and then the, the pastor will read a portion of it. So I'm just going to still a little piece out. We're not going to do a back and forth reading. Essentially, I'm just going to ha- pray, have you guys close your eyes, and I'm going to use this uh, small piece of the liturgy from Palm Sunday uh, to, to pray for us as we get going. So if you would, go ahead and close your eyes. It is right to praise you, almighty God, for the acts of love by which you have redeemed us through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. On this day, he entered the holy city of Jerusalem in triumph and was proclaimed as king of kings by those who spread their garments and branches of palm along the way. 
Let these branches be for us signs of his victory and grant that we who bear them in his name may ever hail him as our king and follow him in the way that leads to eternal life, who lives and reigns in glory with you and the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen. Amen and amen. All right, so to introduce us, as I was preparing for this sermon, um, I have this prayer. It's kind of a long-standing prayer with God. It's actually my longest-standing prayer. There's nothing that I've prayed for more with God is that he would make me a storyteller, a really good storyteller. I said this joke last time, but Josh, he's giving me a, a hard time about going too long in the paint with my stories sometimes. It's like, okay, wrap this one up, wrap it up. So that's, my, that's kind of my default is just telling stories too much. That's my comfort zone. But that's been my prayer for a long, long time. So anytime I prepare a sermon, I'm always thinking story mode. It doesn't matter what kind of text I'm preaching out of. But even here, as we dive into John chapter 21, my mind's thinking story, and this is the very end. And if you know anything about stories, an ending can really make or break the entire story. So you can tell the best story ever, like Logan. I don't know if you've seen Logan. I'm not really advocating that's the best. I think it's rated on, by the way. But such a beautiful ending. I mean, perfect. There's just not a better way to end the story of the Wolverine. Such a you know man, manly story, right? And it ends so, so well. I'm not going to give any spoiler alerts, but it had such a powerful ending. And so I'm looking at John. I'm getting prepared. I'm studying. And I realize that John wrote the perfect ending to his gospel in chapter 20, which is the chapter right before, which is wild because it's like, John, you dropped fire in chapter 20. Why continue on into chapter 21? And so just a quick recap of chapter 20. Jesus had been crucified. He got put into the grave. He died. Three days later, he rose again. Easter, what we're going to celebrate next week. And then he goes on his resurrection tour, showing himself to many, many disciples. People are seeing him in the flesh. Even men like Thomas, who was doubtful of Jesus's actual return. He had so many doubts, but Jesus came and was so gracious to Thomas and many of the other disciples in revealing himself to them post-resurrection. And then John culminates. He summarizes chapter 20 with something that Josh is essentially said almost every single time he's preached through the book of John, but I'm going to read it one more time here. So this is verses 30 and 31 in chapter 20. Such a beautiful ending. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Greatest ending of all time. John, you did it. You did your thing. John killed it. He could have wrapped it up right then and there. I don't think that there's a more perfect way to end the gospel of John. But I can imagine John as he's finishing up this story, right, this gospel, and he's thinking, I feel like I'm done, but there's a little bit of uneasiness. You know, that sense that things aren't quite complete yet. And he gets a sense and then ultimately decides, I'm going to drop this fire bonus track on you guys. Chapter 21, the epilogue coming in hot. Now, if chapter 20 ended so well, the question that I was wrestling with as I prepared 
was why bring in chapter 21? Why do that if you ended so well in chapter 20? So the same question that I wrestled with, I'm posing to you because I believe in these last five verses of chapter 21, John tells us why. He tells us why he brings this bonus track to us. So as quickly as I can, I'm going to recap what Josh preached last week, which was the first part of chapter 21. We get a close-up encounter of Peter and Jesus. Peter's feeling down and out, if you recall, because he had denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times denied him. So he's with his, his boys, the other disciples, and he says, hey, guys, I'm going to go fishing. He's a leader, so the disciples go with him. And then they're trying to catch fish, and there's no, they're not having any kind of luck. They're casting their nets out, nothing. Casting the nets out, nothing. And then they hear this mysterious voice coming from the shore. Cast your nets out to the other side. So they do so, and they pull up this huge buttload of, of fish. I don't know if I'm allowed to say buttload. Is that one of those blacklisted words? Huge load of fish. They pull up. They can't even bring it on the boat. It's like tipping them down, you know. And then John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, looks over at the shore and says, it's the Lord. Peter, all composure out the window, wraps some, some clothes up, jumps into the sea and starts swimming to the shore so that he can be with Jesus. Remember the context. The last time he really had any kind of encounter with Jesus was denying him. But he wants to be near Jesus again. So he gets to the shore and there's this really, I mean, Jesus is so cool. We can't miss that. Jesus probably wore shades, and there weren't even shades invented at this time. Peter swims up to the shore. He sees Jesus cooking fish on the rocks. Isn't that a cool scene? Just kind of hunched over, just cooking some fish. And then there's this conversation. We don't really know how long after this breakfast moment that they have this conversation, but Peter has a conversation with Jesus, just them two. And Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter responds, yes, Lord, I love you. In fact, by the third time, Peter's kind of hurt. He's kind of hurt that Jesus would ask him three times in a row. And then what Jesus does is he says, responds, not just, hey, great, I'm glad you love me, but tend my sheep. Feed my sheep, Peter. If you love me, obey me in these ways. But then he drops a nuclear bomb on Peter, hits him right in the chest, and he says, after he asks him, do you love me, three times, he says, Peter, when you were young, you got to put on clothes and kind of go wherever you wanted to go. But when you get older, someone else is going to dress you and take you to a place you don't want to go. That was Jesus' way of saying, you will be executed, Peter, for following me. Nonetheless, Peter, look at me, look at me, follow me. And then that's where Josh left off and where we're going to dive in today. One thing to note as we enter and just to fill the context up a bit is that Peter's default, whenever things get really hard and he becomes afraid, is to look away from Jesus. And that's what we see here as we dive into this. So I'm going to, there's fans blowing stuff all around. I'm going to do my best here. Okay, so verse 20 and 21 I'm going to read, keeping in mind that Peter's default is to look away in those moments when things get really hard between him and Jesus. Verse 20, Peter turned, turned, and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, 
following them. So it sounds like they're going on a stroll here. The one who had been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? In that moment, it's so subtle. What is Peter doing? He just heard this this bomb hits him in the chest. Peter, you're going to die. You will be killed by following me, but still follow me. He's, he's carrying that weight. That just hit him. 2.33 seconds later, he already turns away from Jesus. He's grasping for straws because what Jesus told him is too much. I can't stand what you just said to me, Jesus, so instead I'm going to look away from you. And I'm going to try to find something to latch my, myself onto, something to maybe grab hold of, to hold on to some hope. And he sees John. And he says, what about this man? A question, again, if you read through it, you might miss it. But why would Peter ask Jesus, what about this man? Two reasons that I think. The first, not as likely, but possible. He's asking Jesus about John. What about this man? Because he wants to know, is John going to die too? If I'm going to go to the grave, by following you, if I'm going to be executed, what about John? Maybe, although unlikely, Peter might find some kind of morbid solace in knowing that John would die too. Hey, if he dies, maybe it's just part of the gig. Maybe following you means we all die, and that's a bummer and terrifies me, and I'm looking away from you every time I think about it, Jesus, but if you tell me that he's on the same path as me, Maybe we could just get through this together. Likely, I don't know. Uh, the second option, that's, this is what I think, is that he's saying, is John going to live? Because, Jesus, if John lives and you said I'm going to die, maybe there's a little bit of wiggle room where I don't need to die. Maybe we can work this out, Jesus. If he doesn't have to die, why don't I? Maybe I don't have to. Why do I have to die, right? So that's why I think he's asking Jesus about John. But remember, his habit is to look away from Jesus. He, that's his default as a person, as a disciple of Jesus, is to turn his eyes away from Jesus. He does this many times throughout the Gospels, not just here in John 21, but all throughout. In fact, it's almost to a point where you're like, man, they're really picking on Peter. They're really dropping some bombs on this guy. But we see this happening in Matthew 14. So we're going to jump out of John, and I'm going to go to Matthew 14. You don't have to go if you don't want, if you want to just note it. But I'm going to be in Matthew 14, verse 22. This is another encounter, what I consider a parallel to what we see happening in John chapter 1 or John chapter 21. So I want to point out this parallel, the similarities between Peter and Jesus and what's happening in Matthew 14 as it relates to John 21. Verse 22 of Matthew 14, here we go. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So this is a picture of Jesus. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, 
beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Fourth, fourth watch is 3 to 6 a.m., worst time ever. He's walking on the sea, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. Remember, wind and waves, it's not quiet. It's not like, oh, it's a ghost, guys. It's not that quiet. They're yelling out, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke back to them. Remember, wind and waves. He's saying, take heart. It's I. Don't be afraid. It's me, Jesus. He's yelling through the wind. All right, here's the parallel, verse 29. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. All right, parallel verse 30. Pay attention. But when he saw the wind, or some passages say strong wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. What we see in Matthew 14 is Peter's looking at Jesus, walking on the water. But then he looks away, his attention is averted to the wind, and he becomes afraid and begins to sink. The parallel, John 21, Jesus just drops his bomb. You're going to die, Peter. By following me, you will die. Peter's filled with fear, and then he turns away from Jesus, and he's grabbing of whatever he can get a hold of, and he sees John. What about him? That, in my opinion, is Peter emotionally and mentally sinking away from Jesus. He's moving further away. Jesus said, look at me. Follow me, Peter. Peter looks away and then asks about John. Peter realized that the one thing he's most afraid of, his death, the thing he's been trying to escape. Think about Matthew 14, terrified because of the wind and waves, his imminent death. He's scared. Think about the time he denied Jesus, this little girl. Aren't you with, aren't you with Jesus? Aren't you with that man? No, I'm not. He's cursing. Three times he denies him. Why? Because in saying, yes, I'm with that man, he knows he might be put right next to Jesus on the cross terrified of his impending death. And then now here he is. Jesus just told him, hey, Peter, no matter which path you take, whether disobedience or obedience, you will die. And it's almost too much for Peter to take. But I get it. I get it, Peter. I understand. For some disciples, man, they went to death with a smile on their face. Think Stephen in the book of Acts, looking up at the face of the Lord in the sky. He just went peacefully. The Bible even says he fell asleep, but he was stoned. That's how much peace he had going into death. Peter did not share the sentiment, at least at the time. So there's a question, hypothetical. Aren't we all like Peter, afraid of what it will cost us to follow Jesus, so turn and look away from him? The same way that Peter turned to John and was like, let me tell me about your plan for John, Jesus. Please help me understand what your plan is for him so I can find some kind of comfort other than just simply following you. We do the same thing. I know I do. Whenever God is calling me to sacrifice and to give up and give up my whole life because that's what he is calling me to do and all of us. Whenever I sense that, 
that he's calling more. He's, he's saying, come on, Anthony, follow me. Keep looking at me. And I consider the cost of that way too much. I start looking around at other things. For me, it's my family, my wife and my kids. I idolize them. Now, I'm not saying don't love your family. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I'm saying my default comfort is to look at my wife and my kids and try to find solace in them above following Jesus. And for many of us, it might be different things, right? Things like materialism, maybe just like the the latest gear, the newest stuff. You got to get that new hotness. And every time you do that dopamine hit, it's like, oh, I got something new. Got something new. So you're giving less, less sacrifice, less, less cost because you want to take in more. I want more of that stuff. I want more newness. Maybe it's relationships, friends, education, career, job. That's another one that I struggle with as well. I'm going to find some kind of comfort in getting a better position, more money, all of these things. Everything except being faithful to Jesus. Now, at this point, Jesus Jesus could have wiped his hands of Peter and said, Peter, I just restored you. Post-resurrection, I'm standing before you, wounds in my side and my wrist. You can see them. I'm alive. I've conquered sin and death in the grave. I'm here right before you. And you're still, still looking away from me, Peter. Come on, my dude. Your boy Peter cannot seem to get things right. Jesus is like, I'm done. I show you how to walk on water and you sink. You tell me that you're all about it, that you're gung-ho, that you'll go with me anywhere I go. And a little girl asks if you know me and you deny me. My darkest moment. I call you to be a peacemaker and you cut off someone's ear. And you run slow, Peter. You run slow. Let's just call it like it is. I'm here before you. You're still looking away from me. I've called you to follow me, to be obedient. Peter, just look at me. Be with me. Follow me. Tend to my sheep. Peter looks away. Jesus could have written him off. But that is not what Jesus did because that is not what Jesus does. Peter's default is to look away, to look away from Jesus, and I'm sure look away from any other source of problem or pain he has, like many of us. But what is Jesus' default? Going back to Matthew 14, let me recap, start at 29, and Peter answered him, Lord, if, it's, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Again, wind and water rushing around. I have a one-year-old, Selah, my youngest, and she just learned to walk not too long ago. Every time she sees me, she'll hop up and she'll be like, ba 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 you know, like babies do, speaking in tongues and all that stuff. So she pops up. Sometimes she's so excited, she'll land right back down, but then pop right back up. And she does this thing where she tilts forward a little bit puts her arms out. She's getting her center of gravity right where she wants it to be. And she just starts walking towards me with that big cheese, you know, that beautiful one-year-old smile. And I'm there like, come on, Sayla, you can do it. And sometimes I get so excited, I just go and pick her up and give her kisses and stuff. This is what I see happening with Peter and Jesus. I see Peter puts one foot out on the water and it's firm. Okay, I'm not, not sinking. Two feet out and he's like, I'm still here. I'm still above the water. I'm still dry. And he sees Jesus there smiling. Come on, Peter. Come on, Pedro. You can do it, buddy. You can do it. And then Peter's just kind of walking. You know, he's the wind and water. That's not stopping. It's still crashing all around. And he's just this big cheese on his face. And he's walking towards Jesus. And Jesus has a big cheese on his face. And he's like, come on. You can do it. You can do it. But then he looks away, becomes afraid because he sees the wind and the water crashing around him. And he starts 
to sink. But then verse, 20, verse 31 of Matthew 14, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. He imme- there was no hesitation. In Matthew 14, Peter sinks, and all he has to offer Jesus is his sinking hand. This is all I can give you. Lord, save me. I'm sinking. No hesitation. No, Peter, I've saved you enough. I'm done this time. He immediately stretches out his hand and pulls Peter to safety. The same thing is happening in John 21 where Jesus says to him in verse 22, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you, Peter? Peter, look at me. Follow me. He is being firm with Peter, but still that is a metaphorical reaching out his hand. Instead of saying, I'm done with you, Peter, looking away from me again, instead he says, hey, look, whether John lives or dies, don't worry about my plan for him. Peter, you worry about my plan for you. Follow me wherever that might lead. Jesus doesn't let Peter sink. He doesn't let him sink in Matthew 14. He doesn't let Peter sink when he denies Jesus in his darkest moments. And he doesn't let Peter sink now in John chapter 21, even though he's looking away from him yet again. That is not Jesus's default. We look away and Jesus reaches out towards us. That's the default. Two points. I couldn't decide on one, so I'm dropping both points on you. The first is Hopefully it's on the screen. The root of sin doesn't begin with the desire or act of sinning. It begins with taking our eyes off of Jesus. Some of us are trying to navigate the sin in our own lives by fighting fire with fire. You're trying to put all these things in place so that you can beat your sin, overcome your sin. You're doing everything except just looking at Jesus, communing and abiding and speaking to Jesus, everything except that. Let me try this. Let me try that. Everything except just looking at him. Second point, which is the good news, apart from the grace of God, we would all sink into the depths of sin and death. We can't have too high of a view of ourself Make no mistake, we all deserve to sink. I understand culturally that's not a very popular thing to say. We all have our value and worth, which I wholeheartedly agree with. But we all sin. And because of that, we deserve to sink except for the grace of God and the default of Jesus to reach into the depths and pull us out and save us. Like I said a few minutes ago, initially I thought, John, why are you writing about this another time when Peter's looking away? Like, you got an issue with my boy Peter? Like, what's going on? It feels like they're really laying into him. Not just John. Look through all the Gospels. It's like, man, yeah, we see some mistakes from some of the other disciples, but we're really pointing out Peter's issues big time. And I thought, maybe John doesn't like him. Maybe there's an issue. I mean, we all understand that, right? Not liking people, unless maybe you don't. Maybe you get along with everyone, I'm sure. But I don't think that's the case. John's a younger man. His brother James and Peter were part of this tight-knit circle with Jesus. I think they were close. And in fact, I think John really looked up to Peter. In his mind, maybe he's looking at Peter and saying, hey, the reason we 
point him out more than anyone is because he's the best of us. He's the best of us. And if this guy's a knucklehead and he's the best of us, our leader, maybe that's a good sign for all of us. I think that's what John's doing is, is trying to make aim. So there's two things, just to clarify, that I think John's doing in telling this specific story. One, Peter's restoration was not dependent on himself but on Jesus. And two, restoration is not as fickle as our integrity. In other words, once restored, always restored. Now, culturally, we hear the message, hey, anybody who's toxic to your life, anybody who's a drain on you, kick them out, cut them off. Nobody really calls out the fact that's obvious that we're all toxic. Every single one of us are toxic. We gossip, we divide, we talk trash, we don't like people for the silliest reasons. We have so many issues, and the reality is we're all toxic. So we should be very, very careful trying to play who's the most toxic out of the two. Who do I need to cut out? Because then you need to cut out the person you're seeing in, your, in the mirror every single day. But restoration with Jesus, the good news is that it's not dependent on our fickle integrity, if we can even call it integrity. God restores us because he is a good God who's gracious, not because we're the good guys and, hey, he just kind of understands me and knows I'm not perfect, so he's giving me another shot. That's not the reality of the situation. Our sin is so much worse than we realize, and God's grace is so much greater. All right, big pivot coming up in verse 23. So up to this point, John put this magnifying glass on this restorative, am I saying that right, restorative, moment between Peter and Jesus. And he wants to make it clear, Peter is restored and it's not dependent on what Peter did. And he made that point. But then in 23, he switches it up. So let me read this. Verse 23, where am I? So the saying spread abroad among the brothers and sisters. So if a saying spreads abroad among the brothers, imagine me saying that. Hey, guys, there's a rumor out there. You might have heard it. It's spread abroad amongst you guys. Chances are you would think a lot of people have heard this and a lot of people believe this. And this is what John is saying. He is fast forwarding all the way to the time he's writing this gospel. He's an old man now. Jesus has long been ascended. Peter has already been martyred by the moment he's writing this. So he tells this close-up encounter of Peter and Jesus decades before, then zooms to verse 23, and he says, okay, that conversation I just told you about, a misconception has formed. A rumor has developed that even years and years and years later, me, John, as an old man, I'm still hearing it abroad amongst the brothers and sisters. A lot of you who are reading this believe this misconception. And what is that misconception? So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple, John, was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the reason I think that John dropped this hot fire bonus track of chapter 21 on us. What would happen to people's faith if John dies and Jesus did not come? Now, remember, John made it clear, this belief that Jesus would come before I die 
is spread abroad amongst all of you. A lot of you are hinging your belief in the words of Jesus on this, that you misunderstood what he was trying to do with Peter by asking that question. Now, we can look back and say, of course Jesus wasn't saying that John was going to live forever. That's not what he, he was just trying to get Peter to look at him. That's all he was doing by asking that hypothetical question. But in the moment, in the present day, during that time, things are a lot hazier, right, in the present moment. Josh talked about this last week, that we see things dimly, like we're looking at, like, in a dark room with a foggy mirror. That, that's how we see things in the present. It's a lot easier when we're looking back. We say, of course Jesus didn't mean that. Come on, who would think that he, Jesus was saying that John was going to live forever? Who would actually think that? And we feel, you know, so like we're geniuses or something because we figure that out. But in the moment, in the moment you hear this, you're like, wait, what did Jesus ask Peter? He said, what, if he lives, if John lives and doesn't die until he comes back, what's that to Peter? So is he saying he's going to live forever? Is that what Jesus meant? We can start to see and understand how this misconception developed. It might seem so subtle just reading through chapter 21, but John is making it clear, you guys are hinging your hope in what Jesus has said in this. If I die, many of your faith might be completely crushed and demolished. Because if you're questioning, wait a second, Jesus isn't back. John just died. What else did Jesus say that might not be true if this isn't true? You see why this is such an important misconception that John has to crush he has to squash this right now. Imagine what would have happened if John died with people during that time still believing that Jesus should have come back by that time. Many of us in this room, maybe all of us, wouldn't be here today. It's very possible and likely that many that word wouldn't have carried as much weight through the generations, thousands of years leading up to this very day. Had John allowed that misconception of Jesus coming back, to persist. But he took this opportunity. He was writing chapter 20, and he thinks, man, but still, so many people believe this. And what's my goal? I want people to know that Jesus is the Christ. Am I accomplishing that goal? I think so, but there's still one misconception out there that might be a barrier of belief for many, many people. I need to remove that barrier of belief. So I have an observation and then a point. My observation is this, not all misconceptions about God's word derive from trauma or sin. So think uh, kind of a hot button word today is deconstruction. A lot of people deconstructing from the faith. A lot of that is due to sin and corruption and trauma in the church. But not every misconception is formed through trauma or sin. But regardless of how they begin, they will form what, what I call barriers of belief, and then I define it. A barrier of belief is anything that Jesus' followers say or do that hinder others from being able to see Jesus more clearly. What, what barriers of belief exist for us today, not just individually, but communally? Something to think about. Point. We need the Spirit to help us discern and remove these barriers of belief from our hearts and our community. We need the spirit to do it. Because again, we see things dimly. We can only see so far. We have to ask God, please God, show me right from wrong, truth from lie. The spirit has to show us. And 
we have to be willing to remove those barriers of belief. For some of us, some of us, that's a lot harder said than done. Because think about how these type of things form. A pastor that you love and you admire and you respect, maybe he took on this misconception, and he doesn't mean anything malicious by it, but he believes a misconception, gets up on stage and preaches a sermon, and it goes into your head. And now you have a misconception based off of what's been passed down, just like it happened in the time of John. It's one small misconception that grew and grew and grew. So we have to wrestle with it and say, okay, how do I, God, help me remove these misconceptions that form barriers of belief. Some are right on the surface. And we choose to live in such a way that we prevent people from seeing Jesus clearly when they look at us. And we have to wrestle with that as well. All right. So I believe at this point, John understands, hey, I've crushed that rumor. I've killed that misconception. The work is done. I can wrap up now. So verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. This is that peel back the curtain moment. Hey, it's me, the disciple whom Jesus loved. If you haven't figured it out by now, it's me, John. I'm the one writing this. And he's not really making a joke of it. He's trying to say, look, I was there with Jesus, and you can trust my words. And people did trust his words, so he wanted to make it clear. He's essentially just signing off on the gospel now. It's me, John. I'm writing it. This, these are my words. You can trust my words. But he puts one last verse, verse 25. And I love this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's so like C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia type. Like, if every book in the world was written about Jesus's, there wouldn't be enough pages. John is so poetic, right? He's talking about all the things Jesus has done, all the things he's witnessed with his own eyes, and he says it so poetically, which I love. It's really a callback to verse 30 and 31 from chapter 20. The words are very similar because John at this point knows I've done what I needed to do with chapter 21. I can sign off and basically say what I wanted to say again to wrap things up. And he's pointing out two things. Don't miss them. Pointing out that, one, Jesus is so much cooler and more amazing and awesome than any of us could ever imagine. John is saying, you guys don't know the half of it. Jesus is so, so amazing. I can fill up every library in the world with just how amazing he is. But the second thing he wants to clarify is that all of these beautiful things, the teachings and the miracles and all of the things Jesus did, they're not even the main course. Jesus is the main course. Those things he was, John was using as bricks to build the house, but now he's saying, okay, the house is built. Come inside and meet the one who lives in here. And my final point is this. This gospel that John is writing was not intended to fill our heads with knowledge. It's just not so that we can take good notes and go to people and say, hey, let's chat about this later on and, and kind of, you know, just learn more. That's not why John wrote this gospel, but to fill our hearts with life. He makes it clear at the end of chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that he wants us all to know that Jesus is the Christ. This is why I'm on the stage right now. 
It's why Chandler and the band sing songs. It's why Amy and Dan lead the front, the guest services group. It's why kids are over there and, and volunteers are volunteering every single week to take care of our kids. Why? Just to do it? That's a lame hobby if that's the case. Super lame hobby. That's not why. There's something else going on that John is trying to drive home. I imagine him writing this gospel, tears coming down his face because he wants people to know the truth about Jesus. And not enough people know. Maybe even you in this room don't really understand or believe. There's something hindering you. But John is writing this so that you would know and I would know. All of these things that we do, everything we do, every pen stroke of the gospel of John, everything we do on a Sunday morning and RCs throughout the week or in coffee shops, month after month, year after year, all of it comes down to this purpose that John is driving home. So I ask us in this room, as we wrap up this sermon series, as we wrap up this specific passage, I have one question, only one question that really matters, that it all comes down to this, and you have to answer it. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God Almighty? Do you believe that? Follow him. Follow him. I'm begging you, follow him. He is the one true God, our Savior, the Messiah. Pray with me. Father, I'm so grateful for your love and your word. Thank you for my brother John who wrote this gospel so that we can see and know that you, Lord, are God, that we could put our faith in you, that we can believe in a world that calls us into unbelief. God, help us remove the barriers of belief in our community and in our hearts, in our minds, everything that hinders us from seeing you clearly. God, help us. Help us to see you. Give us the courage and strength to follow you. And like you did with Peter, consistently reach into the depths and pull us out. We rely on your grace, oh God. We need your grace. None of us None of us can do this on our own. We cannot save ourselves. Many of us may not even know that we need to be saved. God, help us. Pull us out of the depths of our own sin and our own selfishness. Many of us who've wandered away, our faith has become dried up, the fire put out. God, would you call all of us to repentance and back to you and you graciously, without hesitation, reaching into the depths drawing us to yourself. God, please, again, help us. We love you, Lord. We need you desperately. I need you desperately. And I'm praying all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.